I'll just show you where Shinran is on the refuge tree, for those of you who are interested. He's just there on the left. He's one of the Japanese, the four Japanese teachers. Uh, and he's the one on the very left there. If, if you become really interested in him after tonight and want to start worshipping him and so on, that's him. And as Sangaraksha was mentioned, and he's coming here, he's right down the bottom there. That's Sangaraksha in the middle at the bottom. Okay. Anyone surprised how many of you are here this evening? I didn't know there would be so many people. There weren't so many last week, so Shinran is more popular than Buddhist texts, it would seem. Um, so uh, I didn't really prepare all that much for this talk because I thought there would just be a few of you here and we'd have a kind of an, um, uh, an informal kind of evening. But anyway, I'm finding recently that I give better talks when I don't prepare, so there we are probably be better for everybody. Um, anyway, I'm very pleased you've come to a talk on Shinran. Um, I've been interested in Shinran for quite a few years now and studied a couple of his uh, texts and uh, very much inspired by him. Um, of all the Buddhist teachers of the past, I would say Shinran has had a bigger effect on me than any of the others by quite a long way. Um, this evening I thought I would give a kind of critical appraisal of him. Um, but then when I started thinking about it this afternoon and reading a couple of little bits and pieces, I was won over yet again by him and I don't really want to criticise him. Um, the thing about Shinran is that he, uh, uh, he disarms you. So I was thinking, oh, there's a couple of things that he taught which I think are not really quite Buddhist and we need to tell everybody that. And I might do at some point, but uh, really what, what came over for me this afternoon was this tremendous uh, faith and humility and generosity, uh, which completely disarmed me. Again, I'd forgotten because I haven't really looked at anything by Shinran for quite a long time now. And I was just taken back to that early inspiration that I had from him. And uh, maybe I'll tell you immediately what my connection with him is. Uh, he lived in Japan in the 12th and 13th centuries in Kyoto and when he was eight years old uh, he became a monk this is not unusual in the ancient days uh, he became a monk and he lived in a monastery uh, so he was meditating he was studying the Dharma from the early age of eight and he lived in that monastery and practiced the Dharma for 20 years and then he left that monastery in despair I think that's probably the best word for it, despair. Um, he was very, very unhappy because he felt that he was unable to practice the Dharma. He wasn't up to it. He was just, it was just too hard for him. And uh, the main reason I have this very strong feeling connection with um, Shinran is that I feel very much the same. <laughs> that the Dharma, although very simple and very easy to talk about, is very difficult to put into practice, as you all probably know. And uh, I've been practicing for over 30 years now, and it was about 10 years ago when I came into contact with Shinran. So I can't, it was about after about 20 years of practicing and studying the Dharma that I came to a kind of, not a kind of, I came to a full stop. It's as if I hit a wall and I could not carry on. I simply could not carry on doing what I was doing. Uh, everything that used to be meaningful to me and uh, beautiful and colourful 
had become meaningless, colourless and dull. Um, and I just couldn't carry on any further. Or another way of putting it was I felt that it was strangling me. I felt I couldn't get enough air. So, rather like Shinran, although Shinran is a great man and I'm not, I left uh, Buddhism, I left the order for a couple of years, I left the movement and um, tried to find my own way in life. And I, so, in a way, I, had a, I think I had a crisis, maybe somewhat like Shinran's, I don't know. But anyway, you can see how I felt such a strong connection with Shinran. And what Shinran did was, uh, he didn't give up Buddhism, but he, he had great faith in Buddhism, but in a sense, no faith in himself. It was quite interesting. He didn't have any problem with Buddhism, he had a big problem with himself. Uh, and he came across another teacher called Honen. And in a way, you can't really speak about Shinran without talking about Honen, because they are so fused together, their lives are so connected. And Honen had had almost exactly the same experience as Shinran only a few years previously. Went to a monastery, 20 years in the shrine room, meditate, meditate, study the Dharma. And after 20 years, just gave up. There's a very famous passage that, uh, in uh, Honen's uh, magnum, opus, magnum Opus where he says, uh, the Dharma is made up of morality, meditation and wisdom. But I can't even keep a single precept let alone practice meditation, let alone gain wisdom. So he gave up too. But um, what Honen did was he poured through uh, a library of Buddhist books uh, three times. And on the third time, he came across a passage which converted him to Pure Land Buddhism. And it was Pure Land Buddhism which helped Shinran through his crisis too. So, in order to understand Shinran and Honen, uh, I'll have to give you a little bit of background, so I'll do that now. Uh, better just use my notes. This is uh, Shinran's great work, the Kyogyo Shinsho, which means the teaching, practice, faith and enlightenment, and I'll talk about that a bit later on. Um, so I've got a mind map here, just to remind me what I'm doing. So the background, we, have, we need to go right back to the very early Buddhist tradition, right back to the Buddha. So two and a half thousand years ago in India, the Buddha lived, he gained enlightenment, he became the Buddha, the enlightened one or the awakened one, and he began to teach the Dharma. And it was all very, very simple. If you look at some of the very early texts, it's very simple. But around the Buddha began to grow a kind of a myth that the Buddha was not the first Buddha. It was the first Buddha in this world, but there were Buddhists previous to this Buddha, way back thousands and millions of years ago. And there was a line of them. And there were four Buddhas, I think it was, before this Buddha, going way back unimaginable periods of time. And there is going to be another Buddha in the future called Maitreya. Maitreya means the friendly one. And so you get this idea that the Buddha isn't a kind of completely unique being. He's in a... He's in a um, kind of lineage of Buddhas. And I think what they were trying to do with this myth was show that um, uh, Buddhism or, the, or enlightenment wasn't... Hmm, wasn't unusual in a way. Of course, it is unusual. That's not quite the word I'm after. But 
Um, it's open to people at any time. I think that's what this myth was really saying, that although there's only one Buddha in this world, um, it's, it, Buddhahood, uh, the realisation of reality, is open, up, open to anyone at any time. I think that's what that myth really was saying. So that's the early myth that grew around the time of the Buddha. But then, later on, four or five hundred years later, the, what, uh, another kind of whole movement grew up called the Mahayana, the Great Way. And they expanded this idea and they included not just five Buddhas, but they said actually there were loads of them way back in the beginningless past and in the endless future. There's Buddhas going way back and Buddhas going right the way forward. There's this kind of myth that you're in the centre of this um, kind of cosmic enlightenment that in a way is happening all the time. Not only that, that's just in time, isn't it? But the Mahayana expanded this myth out into space and they said, actually, right now, there are countless Buddhas throughout, time, throughout uh, space in every direction, countless Buddhas. That, and they made that clear. You could not even begin to imagine counting them. So all over the place, enlightened beings, and in the past and in the future. So you're, in Buddhism, you're, you're kind of living in this myth of enlightenment, which is all around you. It's in the past, it's in the future, and it's in the present all around you. So you, you get this idea, you know, nowadays it's very fashionable to talk about living in the present moment, and I do a lot of teaching about the present moment. But the way you understand the present moment matters. If it's just a material present moment, in a sense, hmm, so what? But for Buddhism, the present moment is kind of pregnant with the possibility of enlightenment, and that's what the, these myths, I think, are telling us. So with the Mahayana, you, you get the whole thing expanded right out to infinity and uh, eternity. So we have to remember that when, we, when we're thinking about Shinran and his particular way of understanding the Dharma. Um, so then you get... Uh, okay, so... That then also, in the very early days, you go right back to the Buddha. You've got the Buddha, and there's only one Buddha. Yeah, the Buddha is the one who discovered enlightenment. There can only be one of those, really. And you, but you get other people, disciples of the Buddha, gaining enlightenment under the tutelage of the Buddha. So with his teachings, they gain enlightenment. But they're not called Buddhas. They're called arahants, enlightened beings who are enlightened with the with the teacher of the Buddha. But then there came this idea that um, uh, actually it's not that great to become enlightened under the teaching of the Buddha. What would be a much better ideal, a much better thing to strive for would, become, would be to be a Buddha yourself. Now how do you become a Buddha? The way to become a Buddha according to the Mahayana is that you practice under countless Buddhas. Yeah? So in this life you practice under a Buddha. Then in your next life, you practice under a Buddha. And so on and so on and so on, countless lives into the future. Until such time as you're nearly ready for enlightenment. But then in your last life, you don't practice under a Buddha. You practice in a world system where there is no Buddha. But you're so close to Buddhahood that you can do it on your own. And then you discover enlightenment for all the other beings in that world system. Just as the Buddha, the Buddha we know, Shakyamuni, did it for us. So for the last two and a half thousand years, 
thousands and millions of people have been practicing the Dharma because of the Buddha, Shakyamuni. And for the Mahayana, what they were saying was, it's not enough just to gain enlightenment. What you need to do is you need to uh, gain enlightenment where there's no Buddha so that you can open up that path for everyone else. So this new ideal was what's called the Bodhisattva ideal. So instead of becoming an arahant, or be, instead, of be, instead of being a, a kind of disciple of the Buddha, to become an arahant, you become a disciple of the Buddha to become a Buddha way, way in the unimaginable future. So you can see how the Mahayana just opened it all up. I said in a talk, um, not last week, the week before here on Parinirvana Day, that I think that the early tradition lacks a sense of wonder and mystery. But I think what the Mahayana did is they brought that sense of wonder and mystery into the teaching of the Dharma. So you get this unimaginable world kind of universes that, that are going on all at the same time. But anyway, so this is some of the background. And with this background came various texts called sutras, which described the universe from this point of view. They described world systems which were different from our own. Strange, almost scientific, uh, science fiction type world systems and ways of understanding. And in these world systems, you get these beings called bodhisattvas who can travel you know, in the air and they can go from one world system to another and so on, teaching others. So you get this kind of idea. And one of these, well, there are a number of texts. There are three texts, which we now call the Pure Land texts. Um, how much to say about them, I don't know. Um, but they are based around this world system called Sukhavati, which means abounding in bliss or abounding in happiness. And this world system, Sukhavati, is the world system of Amitabha, the Buddha. Now, as it happens... This Buddha figure here is not the historical Buddha Shakyamuni. This Buddha figure here is Amitabha. And Amitabha, uh, Amita means infinite or boundless or measureless. And Abha means light. So Amitabha means measureless light. He has another name, Amitayas, which means measureless life. So measureless light and measureless life. So... Amitabha sits at the centre of this, this land called Sukhavati. So, Amitabha, when he was a bodhisattva, this is all, this might be all a bit crazy for some of you, but I have to give you this background if you're to understand Shinman and his approach to the Dharma. Uh, when Amitabha was a bodhisattva, he made a vow under another Buddha. In fact, he made 48 vows. And I'm not going to tell you what they are. Um, but he made 48 vows, which were basically saying that he's going to create or he's going to purify a land. And it's going to be the best ever Buddha land in the whole universes and galaxies and so on. It's going to be the best. It's going to have all the different aspects of the different Buddha lands. He's going to bring them all together into this one Buddha land. And therefore, it's the land of extreme bliss. And... Uh, the vows were put in a very certain way. There was, some, there was something like this. He said something like, 
if, when I become a Buddha, such and touch doesn't come about, may I not become a Buddha. Yeah? If, when I'm a Buddha, such and such does not come about, may I not become a Buddha, which is a strange way of putting things. It's a bit like saying, if, when I go to America, there are no yellow taxis on the streets, may I not go to America. Because when you're there, it's too late. You're there then. But it's almost as if he was uh, saying, look, I'm going to make these vows. And these vows will help me in my quest to become a Buddha. But once I become a Buddha, if these vows don't come true, may I not become a Buddha. Now, the fact is, that according to these texts, he did in fact become a Buddha. Which means that all of those vows came true. So this is the way it's put in the text. The way I sometimes say it is that it's as if the vows were spring-loaded. We know that Amitabha did create this pure land, so we know that each of those vows were true. Now, those vows have become very, very important to what later became the pure land tradition. Um, now, what you might have noticed about all this is you've got this kind of mythical figure called Amitabha. Some of you who might, be, might not know about this kind of aspect of Buddhism may be thinking, whoa, this is a bit weird. Because what I've been taught about Buddhism so far on the level one course and the level two course is that the Buddha was a human being, an ordinary human being in a way who gained enlightenment, and he taught ordinary human beings how to gain enlightenment. It's all very much down to earth and non-mythical. But what happened after the Buddha was they tended to mythologize everything. And what you have to understand with, these, with the Mahayana and these kind of traditions is they're trying to say something, I think, very important, but they're saying it in a mythical way. So what is the Pure Land tradition trying to say? Who is Amitabha and what does he symbolize? Personally, I don't believe there really is. I mean, this... Some of you may be a bit surprised to hear me say this, but I personally don't really believe that there is literally a Buddha called Amitabha living a million trillion kalpas of miles away in the West, waiting for us to die and go to his land. I don't really believe there is such a thing as the pure land. The interesting thing for me is, what about the ancient Buddhists, the ancient pure land followers? Did they really believe literally in this Buddha and in this land. I'm not sure that we can ever really find that out because I'm not sure they ever thought in those terms. Is this literal or is this mystical? I don't think they ever thought like that. But we in the West do. So we have to kind of come to terms with it. And the way I've come to terms with it is, okay, so let's say I don't really believe in Amitabha as a literal being and the pure land as a literal place. What is it they're saying? And I think what the pure land texts are saying is, Life is good. Life is good. Of course, life is all sorts of things. Life is good and bad and everything in between. But I think what they're saying is, in the kind of, oh, in the, uh, it's quite hard to actually put it into words, um, that life is, mm, can I come back to that one? Do you mind if I come back to it? I can't get my head around it, but once I start talking about Shinman, I'll get into my flow. So, um, 
After the Pure Land Sutra was written, they were written about the second, third centuries of, of um, the Common Era. Second, third and fourth centuries Common Era. And uh, after them, it really started to take root in China. Uh, there were various Chinese teachers of Pure Land Buddhism. And one of the early ones was a man called Tan Wan. And Tan Wan uh, studied the texts. This is what they used to do in these days. We don't really do it these days. They used to just sit down and read a text over and over and over again. And they would write the text out over again. And they would recite the text out loud. And they would paint the text. They would paint the, the different scenes in the text. This is what these people used to do. And we don't really do that these days. We just sort of read a text and then put it down and that's it. But they really took them seriously. So Tan Wan was one of the first of the Pure Land teachers. And uh, he read all three texts. He knew them very well. And he came up with this idea of, which we, which are very common these days in the FWO, we know about this idea of self-power and other power. And this is important for Pure Land Buddhism. If you, under, if you understand Shinran at all, you need to know this distinction. Self-power, other power. Jiriki, Tariki. Um, but... Uh, this is, the way, this is usually the way Jiriki and Tawaki are translated. But there's another way you can translate uh, Jiriki and Tawaki, which is self-help and outside help. And I like that, actually, because power is a bit of a funny word, isn't it? Self-power, other power. But self-help and other power and other help, outside help. So I quite like that. So um, for Tan Wan... What was important was that you practice the Dharma, you practice ethics, you practice meditation, you studied, you try to understand the Dharma, yeah? Self-help, self-power, which goes right back, of course, to the early texts, the Buddha. But there was another thing which is important, which was, in a sense, a kind of giving up oneself, a giving over of one's ego, a kind of relinquishing of control. This is the way I like to put it. It's quite easy to practice the Dharma but keep everything under wraps. Do you know how you can sort of practice and you're meditating, you're concentrating on the breath but there's not much going on. There's a kind of keep everything down, there's a kind of I'm concentrating, I'm doing the, med the mindfulness of breathing and that's it. But if you have that kind of approach to meditation and practicing the Dharma, probably not much will happen. There's, with meditation and everything, I think, with the spiritual life, you have, there's, you have to kind of give yourself up. Yeah? You have to relinquish control. I think this is very important, actually. And it can't be taught. We can't have a workshop about relinquishing control. You just have to do it. I was listening to a bit of music this afternoon. Uh, Sibelius's Fifth Symphony. I don't know if anybody knows the Fifth Symphony. It's really very, very lovely. And there's a, there's a theme that kind of goes through it. And um, you have to give yourself up to it. It's almost like it's saying, give yourself up. You can't really listen to the... The only way you could listen to this symphony and not be moved by it would, by, would be by resisting it. You'd have to sort of... Mm. It kind of draws you in. And then it's almost like at a certain point this theme comes in again, but like on a different note with different instruments playing it and it's much grander and it's almost like if you're really listening to the music it's, it's almost like 
something down there just gives way. You know that feeling of being moved when something just gives way inside you. Sometimes it happens when you're watching a movie and the climax comes and it's a very, very emotional climax. And you know how you just have to give yourself up to what's happening. And for some of us, as well as the giving up, there's a kind of resisting it because you don't want to cry. There's somebody else in the room and you don't want to be seen to cry, so you kind of resist it. This is the men in the room, probably. There's a kind of, whoa, yeah, it's moving, but... But it's, the, the, the movie is almost asking yourself to give yourself up to it. I think this is what uh, the Pure Land tradition is really talking about, and this is what other power really means. I don't think that we need to think that other power is some being out there, or you can think in those terms, but it's almost like... Uh, what other power is really saying is you need to, when you're living this spiritual life, you need to practice discipline. You need to discipline yourself. You need to get up early in the morning and practice meditation. And then you need to discipline yourself in regard to other people. You need to discipline yourself so you don't shout at them when they get on your nerves and so on. And you need to be ethical, in other words. You need all that discipline. And all that's good. But that's merely, that's merely groundwork, Yeah. That merely kind of brings you together as a being. There's something else that you need to do in the spiritual life, something really, really important, and that is give yourself up. Give up your ego. And I think what the Pure Land tradition is saying is you have to give yourself up to life. Amitabha is eternal life, eternal light. You have to give yourself up to that. And in a small way, we can do that all the time. You give yourself up to the situation you're in. You're talking to someone... And you're thinking about something else at the same time. We all do that, don't we? You're thinking about something else. You're thinking about where you're going next. What the Pure Land tradition is saying, no, give yourself up to that other person. Really listen to them. They might be boring you. Give yourself up to the boredom. Stop trying to control the situation. Relinquish control. So you could say that the Pure Land tradition is all about relinquishing of control. It's all about giving yourself up to life. There's a poem that I, some of you will be getting bored with me reciting this poem now, but it's so, so relevant to the spiritual life, I think. It's by David White. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again. Until now. Until now. So it's almost like the... the, with, with Buddhism, you get to a certain point and then it's like, enough. Now's the time to let yourself go. Give yourself up to life. That's what the Buddhist tradition is trying to get you into a position to do. It's not trying to make you really good at doing the mindfulness of breathing. Yeah? It's, it's not about technique. It's not about becoming a really good person. It's about giving yourself up to life. Stop trying to control things. Stop trying to control other people and situations. Allow yourself to really live in the moment. But the moment is a mythical moment. It's not a dead, materialistic moment. It's very mythical. Okay, let's move on to Shinran then. Shinran. Um, Maybe you can see now why Shinran did what he did. He practiced for 20 years and he came to a point where he could do no more. He had to leave. And I think it's very 
uh, very symbolic, I think, that he left the monastery. The monastery was the bastion of the Buddhist tradition. And he went as far as he could in that context and he left. He went out into the world and he had to find his own way. And I think that's true, actually. A Buddhist tradition is very good. It kind of gives us a context in which we can practice. But at some point in each of our lives, we have to, as it were, leave the tradition and gain insight. We have to see things as they are. And no one else can tell you what things are like. You have to see that for yourself. So I think it's very symbolic that he actually left the monastery. So I think I'll just finish the talk by saying a little bit more about Shinran and his teachings. Because um, some of his teachings are so good. They, they, are, they so speak of what the spiritual life is about, I think. Maybe I'll just tell you a little bit about the kind of person he was. I think already you might be getting an idea. But he referred to himself as a bompu. A bompu. And a bompu is an extremely foolish person. Yeah. And he thought of himself as a bompu. He could not gain enlightenment himself. I think this is... Uh, if, if you're interested in finding more about Shinran, there are, there are a few books... I'm just looking for a quote that I wrote down today from Alfred Bloom. That's right, yeah. Alfred Bloom is an American scholar of Shinran, and he is wonderful. I don't think you can buy any books by him. They're all out of print. But um, there's a good uh, uh, website of his called Shin Dharma Net. Shin Dharma Net. Shin means uh, faith. Shin Dharma Net. And it's well worth looking that up because he really is good on Shinran and, and the Pure Land tradition. But I, I just had a quick look at something today. He says, we think that we are self-made, completely independent people, the source of our own success. When there is Eshin, and I'll say a bit about Eshin at the moment, but it's this kind of moment when you realise it's a kind of moment of realisation. When there is Eshin, we see how others have contributed to our lives. Making our success possible. The disciples, uh, the discipline of our parents, the guidance of our teachers, the support of our friends. Yeah. So it's as if, often I think when people are practising the Dharma, there's a certain pride there's self-confidence, which is good, but sometimes there's a certain pride that I'm a Buddhist. And what the Buddha says is you have to do it yourself. You have to practice. Only you can practice. And that is a good teaching because it makes us self-reliant. But what Shinran's insight was that actually, yeah, there are things that I can do. But in the end, I am dependent upon everybody else and everything else in the world. Yeah. So it's not... I think the, the point that Shinran came to was, um, well, Eshin. Let me talk a bit about Eshin. Eshin means the turning of the mind. This is sometimes used in other forms of Buddhism as well. There's a kind of great transformation, a turning of the mind where you see things quite differently than the way you did before. It's almost like you were looking at things that way and then you have a turn round and you see things that way from a completely different direction. And uh, Shinran used this idea, and it was Eshin. 
But sometimes it's translated not as turning of the mind, but a change of heart. And I think that's quite wonderful, actually, because we all know what a change of heart means. We all know that sometimes we have a change of heart. You know when you've been a bit fed up with your partner or you've fallen out with one of your children and there's a bit of a standoff. And then um, at some point you give, yeah, you give. There's a change of heart and you soften towards them. Um, This is a really great teaching for me when I fall out with my girlfriend, which we do occasionally, and there's this kind of very strong sense of anger and um, sometimes there can be indignation. Oh, you did this, you said this, you know that kind of thing, and you're both doing this to each other. No, but you did this. Um, But then comes the rapprochement, doesn't it? Then comes the sort of talking it through. And you can only come to a reconciliation if you both give a little, yeah? And it's that giving, it's that change of heart that Shinran is pointing to, yeah? So in most Buddhist traditions, this change of heart is known as a turning about in the deepest seat of consciousness. And it's usually put in terms of wisdom. It's usually put in terms of you now know more than you did. But for Shinran and the Pure Land tradition, they don't think in those terms at all. They think in terms of heart. It's a change of heart. You've just changed your attitude to something. You don't know any more than you did before, actually. But you've just changed your relationship to it. You've just changed in response to it. There's a softening. And this softening helps you to enter into life more fully. You know when there's this standoff between you and the other and there's a kind of hardening. And that affects you all over the place, not just in relation to this person. You're walking around justifying yourself. You know this self-justification that we can get into. No, I'm not. I'm going to tell them next time I see them. And that hardens us. But it's like this change of heart is a kind of letting go into humanity. So this is another wonderful aspect of of, um, Shinran. For Shinran, insight didn't make him a wise person. It made him realise how utterly, deeply, irredeemably foolish he actually was. That was his wisdom. That was his insight. And I find that very inspiring. Probably because I too am... irredeemably foolish and when I think of trying to become like the Buddha I think I don't think so but when I think of becoming like Shinran I think yeah I think I could do that so Shinran had what I call radical humility it was radical humility he was an, an extremely foolish being yeah but his humility was very interesting because He didn't think everyone else was wise and he was the only foolish one. He thought absolutely everyone was completely foolish. We all are. And the great thing about that is it puts you all in the same boat. Yeah. It kind of, if you thought everyone else was foolish and you were wise, it would kind of put you above everyone, wouldn't it? And everyone else would be down there and you'd be helping them, dispensing wisdom everywhere and all that kind of thing. But actually, if you think you're utterly foolish... And everyone else is utterly foolish. It gives you this tremendously strong connection with everybody else. And when you have that, it is such a relief. It's almost like you join the human race at a much deeper level. Up until then, it's as if you're keeping the human race back a bit. Yes, yes, I love everybody. I feel meta towards everyone, but I'm a bit different. 
But actually, with Shinran, he completely cut through that. And uh, he refused to become a teacher. Yeah? Honen was his teacher. He was a disciple. He was a disciple of Honen and Amitabha. He wasn't a teacher. So he did, he, you know, over the rest of his life, he did gather around him a, a, a group of people. But he didn't consider himself their teacher. He considered himself their friend. He was simply their friend. And I find that so moving, so um, inspiring. So, what else can I tell you about him? Hakurai. Hakurai is a wonderful concept. It means something like the calculating mind. The mind that is calculating. And we have this all the time, yeah? We're always calculating for our own advantage, yeah? How can I get the best out of the situation? You're in a, uh, I mean, of course it happens with work and so on. You're, you're trying to get promotion and you're trying to get on in the world and all that kind of thing and trying to get a nice house to live in. All that's the calculating mind. But we bring it into Buddhism too. So that we're calculating. How can I gain enlightenment? Yeah. So Shinran pointed out the utter stupidity of thinking in those terms. How can I gain enlightenment? Well, you're thinking about yourself. So as long as you're thinking about yourself, you're not going to gain enlightenment because enlightenment is no self. So there's this kind of contradiction immediately. As soon as you start the spiritual life, you can't help but think about you getting on in the spiritual life, making progress. That's all about you, isn't it? I'm going to make progress in the spiritual life. Even if I can't gain enlightenment, I'll try to become a stream entrant. Well, that's you trying to get something out of the spiritual life. You're looking for reward. But what Shinran said, there are no rewards. There are no rewards in the spiritual life. You live the spiritual life for its own sake. Yeah? So he completely got rid of that idea. And what he said was, as long as you're living the spiritual life in the frame of mind of Hakarai, as long as you're calculating your own advantage, even if it's a spiritual advantage, you'll get nowhere. And this is probably why I've got nowhere over the last 20 odd years. It's like I've been trying to get somewhere on the spiritual life. Oh, move forward, move forward. And it just doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You have to give up. You have to relinquish control. What happens when you relinquish control, when you give that up? And I'm sure you've all had moments where you have given yourself up. What happens is the world becomes a wonderful place. Yeah? You're not trying to get on in the world. You're not trying to get what you want in the world. As, long as, you, as soon as you give that up, you start enjoying your life. Buddhism isn't all about, um, well, it is all about renunciation and hard work and so on, but only so that you can have a thoroughly good time, so that you can thoroughly enjoy your life. And that's what happens when we give up this calculation, this trying to get our own way. Once you give that up, you start really enjoying your life and becoming happy. So the opposite of Hakurai is Shinjin. Shinjin, sometimes translated as faith. Now we need to go into this a little bit because you could say that Shinjin, sometimes translated as faith, is the kind of heart of the spiritual life for Pure Land Buddhists. Last week when I was talking about the Buddhist texts, I talked for a little while about a word called, uh, a word, the word prasada. And prasada, I said, meant a whole load of things. It meant brightness, 
purity, clearness, clarity. It also means um, serenity, tranquility. Do you remember what else it meant? Um, means faith. It means a few other things as well, which don't come to mind at the moment, but it's a very wide-ranging word. And the word that is used most often in the Pure Land Sutras, which... Hmm? Joy. Great. Yep. <laughs> Cleanness. <laughs> Clearness, clarity, joy. Okay, very good. It's all those things. And uh, prasada is the word most often used in the Pure Land tradition, which we translate as faith. So it means a lot more than just faith. It means clarity, brightness, purity, joy. Uh, it means all those things. So Shinjin is all that. But it means something for Shinran, which is a bit more than that. And sh- Shinjin is often translated as entrusting. Entrusting. And I really love that. And in a way, that's the heart of Pure Land tradition. It's the heart of Shinran's teaching. That in a sense, what you do is you entrust yourself. Technically speaking, you entrust yourself to Amitabha and the 48 vows. If you entrust yourself to those, then you're giving yourself up to other power and you'll be taken into enlightenment. But I think we can understand it in a wider way. We don't have to stick to this very traditional, technical way of understanding. Within trusting, you entrust yourself to life. Yeah? You give yourself up to life. There's this, um, this is a very famous phrase by St. Julian of Norwich. Um, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. It's a bit like that with the Pure Land tradition. You give yourself up to the tradition, but in doing that, you're giving yourself up actually to life. This is the relinquishing of control, the relinquishing of Hakurai, the calculating mind. And when you enter into Shinjin, then that is true joy and happiness. And it happens in the moment of Eshin. Shinran was very good on uh, present moment awareness. And he said, what you have to do is give yourself up to Amitabha and the vows. You have to give yourself up to that. And in a moment, and this moment is so minuscule a moment it can't be measured... In that moment, there's this turning about, this Eshin transformation into the state of Shinjin. And once you enter into the shape of Shinjin, that's it. Pure happiness, trust. Trust is a very strong value for Pure Land Buddhists. You trust yourself to Amitabha, which which, as I say, I think you can understand as meaning you trust yourself to life. But also, you trust yourself to humanity. Yeah, you trust, you just give yourself up. Um, how are you doing? There's a couple of more things I could say, but it might be that you've had enough and it's time for a cup of tea. What do you think? More. A little bit more? <laughs> okay. Um, okay. William James, I don't know if you, any of you have read uh, The Varieties of Religious Experience, written at the turn of the last century. Yeah, not this century, the last century, so a hundred years ago. William James was, is known as one of the first, if not the first, psychologist. And he did a study of religion and psychology. And that book is wonderful. Varieties of Religious Experiences are well worth having. But in that, he quotes another psychologist called Professor Luber. <laughs> 
And Professor Lerber, after interviewing many, many people who had religious experiences, he came to the conclusion that there were two kinds of religious people. There was the volitional type and the type by self-surrender. Those were the two terms he used. And he said, the volitional type just gets on with the spiritual life, no problem. They're told to pray, they pray. They're told to study, they study. They don't have a problem with it, they just get on with it. The type by self-surrender struggles. They try to pray, they find it really hard. They try to study, they get bored. They try to meditate, their mind wanders all over the place. And what happens is the, the, the volitional type just carries on, very smooth spiritual life through the various stages until they gain enlightenment. The type by self-surrender hits a wall. They get to a point of despair, frustration, depression. They get to a point where they throw everything up and say, I can't do this. And it's at that moment when they say, I can't do this, that the insight arises. Yeah? So these are the two different types. And Shinran is obviously, it seems to me, the type by self-surrender. There's a little doctrine that he uses, which is very important, and which scholars say is, in a way, a doctrine which typifies his life. And it's what he calls the turning through the three vows. This is quite technical. I'm not going to go into all the technicalities of it. But in Pure Land Buddhism, of course, the whole doctrinal basis of Pure Land Buddhism was the 48 vows of Amitabha. And they studied these vows and interpreted them in different ways and so on. So we're not going to go into that technicality. But um, there was one vow which eventually was considered to be the vow, which in a way said it all. And it's called the primal vow. The 18th. The 18th vow is the vow. If you have to take one vow, take the 18th vow. And the 18th vow, in a way... Uh, expresses, for Shinran anyway, expresses complete dependence on other power. It expresses that complete relinquishing of control. But how do you get to that point? Shinran wants you to just get there now. Just open up now. You don't have to do any preparation. You just have to relinquish control now. Have you done it? Well, if you haven't, there's still something that you can do. So this is where the turning, uh, the turning of the three vows comes about. So what you do is you start with the 19th vow, then you go to the 20th, then you go to the 18th. Now I'm not going to tell you what these vows are because it wouldn't help you very much because Shinran's interpretation of them is very, very Shinran. It's very hard to see how he interprets those vows in that way, but he does. He's had a very singular mind. And he also, um, there were three Pure Land Sutras, right? And he also correlated each of these three vows with one of the three sutras. So we won't go into all that. But anyway, apart from all these technicalities, he was really onto something. So how do you turn through the three vows? Well, the 19th vow, basically what you do is you practice the spiritual life, ethics, Meditation, study, spiritual friendship, mindfulness, and so on. You practice, but within the context of other power. You're practicing so that you can get to a point where other power can take you, or, in other words, where you can relinquish control. That's the 19th vow. 20th vow is where you give up all these practices, or you let go of them. 
yeah, and you rely completely on Amitabha. There's a number of things I haven't said, which I probably should have, but there's a mantra which you say called the Nembutsu in Japanese, the Nembutsu. Namu Amida Butsu, which means homage to Amida or the infinite Buddha. Homage to the infinite Buddha. And with the 20th vow, you give yourself up to that and that's all you do. You just say that mantra over and over again because you're giving yourself up to other power then. Yeah? But if you're doing that, you're doing something. So you're still doing it. You're still practicing in self-power, even if it's in another power context. So that only can take you so far. Yeah? Then you move on to the 18th vow. And in the 18th vow you completely give yourself up and you don't practice at all. No practice, because any practice gets in the way, it kind of gets in the way between you and Amitabha. Your practice is to do with the calculating mind. So at this point, you get to a point where you give everything up and you simply live within Amitabha's vow. That's the 18th vow. So what Buddhists uh, or scholars of Shinman have often say is it's interesting that, that he came up with that, um, that doctrine of turning through the three vows because you can see his own life in those terms. I don't exactly know how that works out, but it's obvious the 20 years in the monastery after the 19th vow. Ethics, meditation, wisdom, study, etc. Practice, self-power. And then he met Honen, and I'm only guessing here, but I'm, what I'm guessing is that with Honen... Honen taught the Nembutsu. He taught that forget everything else and just say the Nembutsu. Namu Amida Butsu. Over and over again, that's all you need to do. Yeah, that was Honen's teaching. So that's what uh, Shinran gave himself up to. But then he had to leave Honen. Uh, should have said this at the beginning of the talk. But um, what happened was uh, Honen's teaching became very popular. And some of the other Buddhist groups were not very happy about that. So they complained to the emperor and said, this isn't really Buddhism, this is a travesty of Buddhism. So Pure Land Buddhism was not very popular right from the very beginning. And the emperor banished Honen to a right to some coast somewhere in Japan, completely away from Kyoto. And he, he banished all the disciples of Honen, so Shinran ended up in another part of Japan. And he uh, executed two of them. To the two of Honen's disciples who taught in the, um, the emperor's harem. They taught Pure Land Buddhism, so he executed them. So very, very bad do. And um, so Shinran was banished. So he was taken away from Honen. So he developed his own understanding of Honen's teachings independently. And he went one further than Honen. So maybe I'll leave you with this last thing, which I think sums up very well. Shinran's take on the spiritual life. Honen said famously, even bad people will be born in the, good, in the pure land, not to speak of good people. Yeah, even bad people. Shinran said, even good people will be born in the pure land, not to speak of bad people. <laughs> yeah, meaning that if you're a good person, if you're a good Buddhist, there will be a certain amount of pride involved with it. Yeah you start thinking, ooh, I'm getting on quite well here. I can meditate. And I'm quite a good teacher. People really listen to me when I'm speaking. And you can't help but thinking, ah, I'm getting somewhere. And of course, as soon as you think that, 
you're getting nowhere. So even good people will be, you know, even good people, even those prideful, arrogant good people will be reborn in the, in the pure land. Not to speak of bad people. There's no question about bad people. They'll just go there because they, they've got no pride at all. So Shinran's teaching was a great antidote to pride. So I think we'll end on that note, actually, because that is such a... Such a... um, I can't think of the word, but when you're a beginner, there's this idea of beginner's mind, isn't there? And I've seen this time and time again on beginner's courses. You see people growing in front of your eyes. You see their eyes lighting up. You see... I don't know. You see them light up as beings in a beginner's course. And then as you carry on practicing the Dharma, it all gets more hard, harder. And I think what it is, is we have to go back to beginners. We have to realize that even though we might have been studying the Dharma for some months, some years, some decades, we might have been practicing for a long time, we're still absolutely nowhere. Yeah? And if you have that approach that actually I've been practicing for 30 odd years and I'm nowhere then there's a chance for you to have this relinquishing of control but if you think oh I'm really getting somewhere now I wonder if I'm a stream entrant yet might even be a non-returner I wonder you start thinking like that well you'll just have to start again from square one so Shinran is a wonderful leveller I think and I think that will do. There's one more thing, actually. <laughs> one more thing. I've just seen in my notes. Mustn't forget this. When you give up the calculating mind and you enter into Shinjin, you also experience or you become Jinen. Okay? Jinen is wonderful. Jinen means naturalness. Yeah? And when you give up trying to control things, when you give up trying to calculate for your own advantage... You become completely natural, yeah? And this is what the Pure Land tradition is trying to get us to be. Enlightenment is complete naturalness, complete spontaneity, complete uh, uh, transparency, yeah? With a Pure Land teacher, what you see is what you get, yeah? Complete naturalness, spontaneity, and transparency. And that will do.